They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 16 The Policeman and the Postman Well, it's been a pretty interesting time since the last podcast. Quite a lot has been happening in the background and I'm going to have to pick my way through how I narrate this episode very, very carefully. And I have to be honest with you, some of the things I've become aware of since the last podcast, they'll have to remain with me for a while. Now, I want you to trust me on that. I want to tell you everything that is safe and legal to disclose. But unless you're all prepared to come and visit me in jail, you'll have to accept that some things I won't be able to yet. The detail of that will become apparent later in the episode, but it's safe to say the things I will be able to tell you, well, I think they're pretty remarkable in their own right. But there's a lot to cram into this episode, so let's begin. Do you remember, a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that I was trying to organise an interview with one of the policemen who was involved in unearthing the body the day Fred was discovered. He's now living in Australia, Funny enough, not a million miles away from Zoe Kun. And we were able to record what I think is a fascinating conversation about what happened from the very first moments that the body was discovered. First time, I think, anyone has interviewed one of the policemen involved in the discovery of the body. His name is Rod Bloss. And I'm grateful to Ange Billings, who is a member of the Facebook group, for her help in setting this up. Rod and Ange are brother and sister. And it turns out, he wasn't just a policeman. He was the scenes of crimes officer who was sent immediately to supervise the removal of the body when Fred was found. Hello, Rod. Ken Davis again here. Yeah, hello, Ken. Um, is it convenient? Is it okay to talk? Yeah, I'm right. Good man. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, and I'm grateful uh, for your time on this. Obviously, I've been looking at this for about two years, this case of this poor chap that got found. So to speak to somebody who was there at the time is quite a thing. So I'm, I'm grateful for you uh, agreeing to do this. Yes, I managed to stay alive all this time. So, to go back to 1971 then. Yeah. Were you a kind of a young constable then with the force? I'd been in the police for, oh, crikey, nine years then. Oh, okay. But I'd spent, I'd spent three of it in Birmingham, Birmingham City. And uh, I spent until 1972, I think, 72, 73 in the Staffs County in Stoke-on-Trent okay. in Stadnery. Mm-hmm. For most of that time, I was uh, since blind officer. 
So you were there in the in your capacity as a scene of crimes officer when, when he yeah. was found. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So, how did you hear about it? You know, what was the first you ever you knew that a body had been found just off Newton Road? Uh, I was called to it. Okay. Um, a phone call came into the Burton police station, and uh, it was up to the um, to the officer in charge to uh, detail people to it. Okay. Um, so he was found on the Friday evening, and if he was found about seven o'clock by David, David rings this police station, and uh, yeah. and then all hell breaks loose. So I think people went over there on the on the Friday. Friday evening, but but I think nothing really happened in terms of exhuming the body until the Saturday. My partner and I, we were both detective uh, constables and both on uh, scenes of crime. Okay. And uh, we we went down there on that night, but well on that afternoon actually, uh-huh. and we started to uncover. Um, the, the body. Mm-hmm. You can tell it was a, a head. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we started to do that, and the twilight came in pretty quick. Yeah. And um, so we were told to leave it as it was uh, for the night. Yeah. To start again the next day. As you would imagine, it's, uh, you can't do that sort of work in the dark. No. without art lamps, all that sort of thing. And uh, they put some officers, uniformed officers, to stay there overnight uh, to make sure nothing broke the scene or anything like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we, replied, we returned to the scene. Oh, crikey. I don't know what time it was in the morning, but it was early. Uh, as soon as daybreak came. And uh, by that time, I think Dr. Van der Merwe, yeah. who was a pathologist, yeah. um, he, he came down to the graveside to have a look at what was going on, and uh, he, um, he watched for a while, mm-hmm. while the head was on the mm-hmm. um, and then, uh, I'm trying to think now, yes, I think that he uh, said that the head could be cut from the rest of the body oh okay um, to keep it uh, you know keep anything from getting at it and so on yeah um i'm not sure whether it happened that morning or whether it happened last thing the, the night before it might have been to preserve it okay but, uh, anyway it was it was mummified the body yeah so there was there wasn't anything untoward in it. There's no worms, no creatures of any sort. Yeah. Um, it was completely mummified. But we didn't know that until my mate and I dug it out. And we had to dig it out by hand because uh, we didn't know how it come by his death. What was the feeling at the time you were dealing with a modern body, or was there any thought at the time? Well, actually, this could be this could be thousand years old. This, or or did you always think actually this is this is recent? 
No, we we thought it was uh, perhaps a throwback to the uh, end of the Second World War when the Americans were billeted in the in the area in and around Burton, and uh, we thought that it might have been somebody who got into trouble and um, the the person had been uh, murdered. Yeah, we did think it was um, from the Americans okay. that it was at the end of the Second World War. The body would be uh, recovered eventually and um, it was then found out that it was only about 18 yeah, months old. that's right. As you were digging it out, what was the earth like? Was it soil? Was it normal soil or was it ash? Or what, what, what was it you were digging through? Well, I thought it was more ash than soil. Uh, it used to be one of the ash kilns or something like that. It was a the, kiln, uh, yeah. It was an old kiln. It's not heavy clay soil, this. It's, it's quite light from what you're describing in terms of being able to... Was the excavation of, therefore, a relatively easy one? out uh, but we had to go very steadily because we didn't know whether there's any weapons yeah. um, in the body such as knives and things like that yeah um, so we, every inch that we went down we got to be very careful that we didn't dislodge something that was going to be evidence later in the day yeah uh, so but eventually we got down to the bottom of the pit and uh, the body was um, in one piece, yeah. except for the head, of course. It was tied round the wrists and round the ankles, yeah. and the one to the up, and it was stuck in the in the end of the, the kiln. Yeah. To me, it was kneeling, yeah. and it looked like a definite murder. Okay. He couldn't have done that on himself. Hey, he wouldn't have buried himself, that's for sure. One of, one of the things I'm just interested in, in the t and how he was tied up, was it two separate uh, pieces of twine, one for his hands, one for his ankles, or was it one piece of twine? It was two separate pieces of twine from what I remember, but then that had been joined, feet to the... Uh, to the hands, to the wrists. I see. So there were, in fact, three pieces of twine. One binding his hands, one binding his ankles, and then one joining the yeah. two together. Yeah, I think the same stuff was used for the twine. Um, it just been cut into pieces and, and used. Uh, that seemed to me to be the, the case. Hands tied, feet tied, and then two things then tied together with a third piece of the same twine. Yeah, that's great. my recollections of no, it, yeah. That's, that's, that's great, that's interesting to hear. Um, did you see the socks? Yes, got both socks on his feet. I don't know what the symbolic thing is about that, leaving his socks on, but yeah. that was what he was. And he, he got a ring on his finger as well. I can't remember firsthand where the ring was, whether it's, I think it was the right hand. It was the right hand. It was the wedding ring finger of the right hand. It uh, was. That's, that's what I thought. You know, it was like a married person, but on the wrong hand. Just going back to those socks, Rod, what colour do you remember yeah. them being? 
The, the police at the time said they were kind of a mustardy colour. A lot of people have said they were pink and there's some significance to that. I, I, I think they were just yeah. a mustardy colour. I can remember there was pink in it. From pale yellow yeah. as well. So just to recap on something which is a bit new to me, which is interesting, which is the head was separated from the body then, early on in, yeah. the, in the exhumation process. Yes. But it wasn't, just to be clear, separated when he was found. The body was all in one piece, but the decision was taken to take the head separately to the rest of the body. Yeah, I know Van der Murray came down and he um, cut the head off. Uh, okay. And I can't remember now whether it was the night before or the day, that, the morning that we started uh, uncovering it. I've got a feeling it was the night before because we didn't want uh, any wild animals coming and uh, having a go at the head. And when you were looking at the body, was there any evidence of foul play? Uh, clearly there was evidence that he was tied up and he was being buried, but, but was there any, were any obvious wounds or anything like that that you, when you were looking at the body, thinking, ah, I can see what's happened here? No. He was obviously been executed by the position that he was in and the fact that the hands and feet had been tied, so he wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, so he'd been uh, murdered in some other fashion, mm. uh, but from a mummy, we, uh, we couldn't tell. Uh, you know, things like strangulation and so on went through everybody's mind, I think. Um, it possibly was, but there was no evidence of that from looking at it in the grave um, that we find at the time and we did manage to get all of the soil out and the body eventually to put in a body bag mm. together with the head uh, it, I took it to the mortuary where Dr. Van Murray took over on that part Dr. No, what was his name? Mant Keith Mant yeah that's it yeah uh, from London yeah yeah Interesting. So there was no no clothing at all apart from the socks. In fact, the only things that body had was the socks and the ring and the and the yeah. ligatures, the, the 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 twine. Because when I when I've read like the pathology the pathologist's report, particularly when it when it you know went in front of the coroner and things, yeah. the the pathologist was quite clear. She said this was a sexual act that had gone wrong and he could have done it himself. Recorded an open verdict. What was your view? And, and did you hear about the fact that they said, oh, this was just a sexual act gone wrong? I didn't. It was obvious that he'd been murdered and it wasn't involved in any sort of sexual deviation. But, but what's interesting is that the pathologist, Doc, and this was Keith Mann, not, not Van der Merwe, said, no, it was, it was just a sexual act that went wrong. In fact, he said he had put himself in the same situation with 
Uh, I think it's, this is like asphyxia, controlled asphyxia, as opposed to a heighten the sensations. But he said he put himself in the same situation, and uh, that's probably what happened. But nobody seems to believe that, apart from him. No, not a chance. I, I mean, I don't think for a second that that's right, but, but in the sense of I don't think it was a sexual thing going wrong. I think it was, a, um, a, you know, as, you, as you say, an execution. But um, I'm, just, I, I'm just interested to what your reaction is to the fact that that's what's officially recorded and was recorded in seven, 1973. Yeah, 1973. Yeah, probably another year or so before that. Yeah. What were, were people speculating about about what might have happened? People must have had some kind of theories. There was a few uh, sort of ideas banded around, not by the police. They were um, steadfastly stuck in their investigations as to where this was going. Yeah. Uh, but there was a lot of people made speculations about who he was, why he was there, what had happened. I mean, one of his sexual things has probably come from that. Yeah. Um, Just on that, uh, one of the things that struck me, I've obviously been to the site, and one of the things that struck me is, I mean, firstly, people don't bury people in places they don't know. They just, they don't. No. They, they bury no. people, particularly if they never want them found, and this person was buried with the intention of him never being found. Uh, they, they bury them yeah. in places they know. That is such an unusual place to get to because you have to walk a long way if you're going from the Bass's Meadow direction. You can go over the bridge there, uh, but that was locked on both yeah. sides. You could, at a push, go over the weir from the mill because uh, it was just on the other side of the weir. Yeah, uh, but there was another bridge, the other side of the mill. Yes, there was. was fairly new. I, could, I couldn't see uh, anybody getting a body across there without people seeing them. Um, you come in suddenly, the one from uh, uh, down Bass's Meadows, um, it would have to be a time when there was no rain, which I don't know it was at that time. Yeah, uh, correct. You couldn't get a good arm there very easily. Um, you could drive, there was a, a track. Um, down from, uh, or what do they used to call that lane there? Yeah, and Med Meadow Lane, isn't it? Meadows Lane, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. they'd have to drive the, uh, a van or whatever it was they'd got um, over the meadows and take a right-hand drift yeah. into the river edge uh, before they could get to this copse. And uh, I just, I couldn't see somebody going to all that trouble to get to somewhere that um, they might be able to bury a body or might not. Um, it would have to have been known by the assailant. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, uh, I put that out of my mind at the time. Uh, my obvious way would have been to go over the bridge yeah. with a, a body. Um, well, might even have been uh, alive when they crossed the bridge. Yeah. 
somebody had got the key to both padlocks, both sides of the river. Uh, and that was the part that, that got me, you know. I didn't know how come they would have carried a body across the bridge if it was locked at both ends. Well, that's, that's the mystery. And uh, you're right, the other thing about Bass's Meadow is if you're going to bury a body and come that way, you're probably going to pass a hundred just as good places to bury him if you're coming that way in Bass's Meadow than the one you found yeah. right, you know, after, a, after a, a mile, you know, or after half a mile. So, yeah, he could have come Bass's Meadow way, but he must have come to a place that, that his killer knew. Yeah, his killer knew that that site, knew exactly how to get rid of that body, and either took him there dead or took him there alive. Yeah, that's right. They would really have to know the place quite well. And that was the conversation with Rod Bloss, the first scenes a crimes officer at the crime scene. And we did go on to talk about a few other things, people that may have been involved, but that's where I have to be careful, because. Some of the ideas and rumours that we got to talk about, I need to keep them to myself for a while because it would be unfair to put those names out there without any other information. But that conversation was extremely useful. Over 50 years, things get embellished and exaggerated, but I got the feeling that Rod was telling us exactly what happened on that night and the day following. And there were three or four things that I came away from that call knowing that were completely new to me. The first one was that the head was cut off by the pathologist whilst Fred was still in the ground. And that's how Fred's head became detached. That seems extraordinary. It seems to have been done to preserve the head from vermin. I mean, remember, the head's been in the ground for 12 months already. If you want to protect it from vermin, put a bag over it. There were policemen who were keeping watch all night. That seems a pretty low risk. And rather than preserving evidence, did that not risk destroying evidence? If strangulation or any kind of throat wound was involved, would that still show up after the head had been cut off? I'm no expert, but I'd be surprised if that's common practice. Secondly, the bindings. How he was tied up. It's always puzzled me throughout this case exactly how he was bound. It's never been completely clear to me. It is now. He was tied around his wrists with one piece of twine. He was tied around his ankles with another piece of twine. And then these two bindings were joined by a third piece of twine. That's interesting. It would eliminate, completely remove a person's ability to move. They would be totally at the mercy of their killer. It also, though, suggests to me transportation, making a body easier to transport from point A to point B. It also feels it was very well thought out, as if that's the way they'd done it before, like they knew what they were doing. And I use the word they purposely. It's very much starting to sound to me like this wasn't one person. There was more than one person responsible for tying Fred up. Thirdly, 
he used the word execution. Now that's the first time I've ever heard that word used in the context of this case. And that's a powerful word because murder, well, that can be a flash of anger uncontrolled that leads to a terrible result. But executions are planned. That's different. It implies taking someone alive to the place of their death, subduing them in some way, rendering them incapable of escape, and then killing them, and then burying them. And does that explain the curious position of the body, the kneeling position? Was he forced to kneel, alive? Is that the last action of a living person? And finally, we talked a lot about the various routes the killers might have taken to the deposition site. Rod is pretty clear that the killers would have needed to have known that site before the murder. But one thing I did get a strong feeling for from Rod was that he thinks they came over the bridge. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. It's a remarkable thing to listen to someone who was actually involved in digging out Fred's body. Essentially, the first person to see him since the murderer. And again, I find myself marvelling at the powers of recall of people who were around then. A couple of things to mention. I was interviewed last week by Mary Knowles for Repton Radio. Now, Repton Radio is a community-based radio project that was started during lockdown, which has really thrived since then. And hopefully that interview will be available to listen to soon. And when I learn the schedule, I shall let you know via the Facebook page. But that was an enjoyable thing to do. And I think it's important because not everyone has access to podcasts. And I want as many people in the immediate area to know about this project, particularly those who might be of the same vintage as the murder, so in their 70s maybe, or even 80s now. So radio is a good means of spreading the word beyond the podcast, so I was very pleased to do it, and I very much hope that uh, someone who listens to that may contact me with some more additional information. A couple of people to mention as well which I'd like to do uh, a big thank you to a lady called Marg Harrison who's been helping me a lot in the background with some detailed fairly forensic family history research she's been a tremendous help in the last few weeks so I want to say a big thank you to her and Jennifer Smith who I know follows the podcast and is a big supporter of the podcast. I had a conversation with her about it last week and I know how much she enjoys it and I very much enjoy the fact that you listen to the podcast. By the way, remember, if you want to get in contact with me about the podcast or ask me any questions about it or if you have any information about it which I need to know about, contact me via email and that's at fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com or contact me via Facebook and not difficult to find. So, let's get back to the story, and don't go anywhere, because things were about to take a turn for the peculiar. Just when I thought this couldn't get any more mysterious, about a week after recording the last podcast, 
a very, very strange thing happened. One of the people who's been working closely with me throughout this process, and you will have heard me refer to them before, well, they received a letter. It wasn't a normal letter. It didn't come through the postal system. It was handwritten and it was hand delivered. The envelope simply read their name and Fred the head underneath it. And inside that envelope was a single sheet of lined paper and a message. And I'm gonna read you that message. I do though have to blank out certain words for legal reasons, but listen to this. Look to the family that lived in Queen Street, Burton-on-Trent staffs. His brother, he had connections with a gang in Brum. Fred is from Sutton Coalfield. They picked him up on their way to Burton in October of the year he died. So, and that's all it says. I'd like to dissect this letter in a bit more detail. Firstly, its appearance. It's 46 words long, it's written in pencil over 12 lines and the paper is not A4 paper, it's narrower, it's lined, it's almost taken from a notebook. And the handwriting is unusual. It mixes lower and upper cases fairly randomly, sometimes in the same words. Some of the spelling's incorrect and there's no punctuation. Now, I'm not a handwriting expert by any means, but it looks like it was written by an older person. And the first time I saw it, I imagined it to be a woman's handwriting. Again, I'm not an expert. I can't really explain why. Just sometimes when you see handwriting, you kind of think that's a woman's writing and that's a man's writing. Well, when I saw this, I thought it was a woman's writing. Certain letters are capitalized always. So the letter H always appears as a capital in this letter, probably a habit this person always repeats. But some of the content is odd. The address that's given, and it says Queen Street, Burton-on-Trent, Staffs. That's peculiar, because if you're living in Burton, delivering this to someone in Burton, just say Queen Street, or maybe Queen Street, Burton, but not Burton-on-Trent, or Staffordshire. That just seems too much detail. It's not the way people talk about Burton in Burton, and that strikes me as maybe someone who doesn't live in Burton. Now, how that person ended up with the address of the person they delivered it to, I don't really know. But you wouldn't normally put the whole address, including the county, when you're referring to the town that you're living in. The use of Brum as well is interesting. Now, for those who are not from the Midlands of the UK, and I know we have listeners all around the world, Brum is a shorthand, a short name for Birmingham. Birmingham is the big city around here. It's about 20 miles away from Burton. And the use of Brum for Birmingham is used fairly widely in Birmingham itself. And I've certainly heard it in the Black Country, which is Wolverhampton and Walsall, those kind of areas. I haven't heard it so much around Burton, though I've asked around and some people say they do know that it is used. Now, the place they say that Fred came from, in the letter, it's called Sutton Coal Field, C-O-A-L Field. Now, in fact, it's Sutton Cold Field, in reality, C-O-L. 
LD field. Now, Sutton Coldfield is a place about five miles away from the centre of Birmingham, but it is on the way to Burton. So, in 1969, it's very plausible indeed. If you were travelling from Birmingham to Burton, you would pass through Sutton Coldfield. But the misuse of Coldfield suggests that whoever wrote this letter wasn't particularly familiar with Sutton Coldfield, certainly didn't live there, or they wouldn't have made that mistake. And what about the last bit? They picked him up on their way to Burton in October of the year he died. I think that's very significant, and it makes me feel that this person does know about this case. One, because it's really specific. This person clearly knew detail about what happened, they know their movements. Also, the use of October of the year he died. Well, that only leaves October, November and December. And that does fit in with the end of 1969. If he was killed at the end of 69, the state of decomposition that was found in March 71 falls in line with that. But it also suggests that this person knows that he died before the end of that year. And I find that quite compelling. One other thing to mention is how the letter ends. It ends with the word, so. And that's an odd way to end a letter. Were they interrupted? Did they lose their train of thought? Did they mean to go back to the letter and never did? Is it their initials? I don't know. But that letter simply ends with the word so. And finally, that letter yielded another clue as to who may have sent that letter. There are indentations in the letter on the reverse with other writing on them. And in those indentations is the address Siddles Road. Now, Siddles Street is in Windshill, but it clearly says Siddles Road and Siddles Road is in Derby and next to Siddles Road there's a name of a pub or a hotel which starts with a B and that's all we can make out from it. Well if that is Siddles Road Derby then that pub would be the Brunswick Inn, a famous real ale pub near the railway station on the corner of Siddles Road. So does that mean the letter writer is actually from Derby. What I would say is if you are the letter writer or if you know who that letter writer was, please, please get back in contact. You may hold the key to something very, very interesting. Now we have to be careful. This could just be baseless rumour. Someone with an axe to grind against an innocent person. Someone who simply got the wrong end of the stick a very, very long time ago. It could, of course, though, be true. It's definitely intriguing. And for the first time, I've been given the location that the victim may have come from. And that's impossible to ignore. So, sounds like I've got some work to do. But, until next time, have a good one.
The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>